Attention passengers, today on Strangers on a Podcast, we have a 1997 film that puts Bruce Willis on the worst cruise in history. It contains a floating Thai restaurant, a spaceball going ludicrous speed, and a perilous auto wash. Join us, won't you? Welcome to the movie car here at Strangers on a Podcast. I'm the conductor, and with me is... I'm Grimweed. Welcome, Grimweed. We're called Strangers on a Podcast because we're two guys who don't know each other, and we're talking about movies to see how they bring people together. Are we going to drive each other nuts? Are we going to curse and scream one another out? Are we going to stay on topic? We'll see. Today we are talking about the one and only The Fifth Element. What is there to say about The Fifth Element that hasn't been said already? Well, probably not much. Luke Besson worked on Fifth Element as a kid, making drawings and story notes in class while in high school. He uh, had a lonely childhood and he invented this world to escape to uh, that was the world of The Fifth Element with Corbin Dallas. Uh, Corbin Dallas is a cab driver because his Luke Besson's father worked as a second job as a cab driver to pay for Luke's art school. Therefore, uh, Luke Besson always puts a cab driver in his movie, supposedly to uh, honor his father's sacrifice. I believe he was inspired by the works of Mobius and uh, another writer, another comic book cartoonist uh, named Meziers. Jean-Claude uh, Meziers, and um, I'm trying to remember Mobius. It was Jean-Paul Durand. Yes, the, the creators of heavy metal. Indeed. Or... Uh, uh, what's the French term for heavy metal? Um, her, I don't know. Metal, That's why I went no. with heavy metal. I, I, yeah, but the, the French name is so cool, too. It's metal yeah, it, it's cool, but I'm not even going to try and pronounce French. Metal Herlant. <laughs> now, after a few indie successes uh, under Luc Besson's credit, uh, with a few low-budget pictures in the 90s like uh, The Professional and La Femme Nikita. Well, The Professional uh, so, is what got him the, the ability to do this. Exactly. Uh, someone gave him the cash to turn his teenage fever dream into a big-budget movie, and he knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Now, he uh, got help turning his teenage ideas into a script by uh, Robert Mark Kamen, who was most famous for having written the written Taps and The Karate Kid by that point, but has gone on to do the Taken franchise and the Transporter movies. And to get, together, they turn in a really tight script that doesn't have a boring scene in the whole movie. It's It's pure spectacle, action, and laughs. And Larry Cohen could have written this thing. It's it's that tight. Longtime Besson collaborator Thierry Arbogast shot the movie with an over-the-top color palette that makes the whole movie a visual feast. A lot of movies from this time period have suffered from their VFX aging horribly, but the fifth element has aged like wine, and there's not a bad moment in the whole movie. The only real bad effects scene that, off the top of my head is when they did the digital dive. The digital dive. Yes. When Lilo falls off the building. Yeah, when Lilo, um, when she does the initial jump, the the first actions of the jump are her, and then the jump itself is a stunt double, and then the fall is digital. Well, it still looked better than RoboCop. Eric Serra handles the music uh, for The Fifth Element, and it's like a Jungle Beat stomp meets John Williams' roller coaster that never lets you forget your scene a purely gonzo sci-fi action fever dream. Eric Serra really knocked it out of the park with this movie. He, if, if you if you ever heard the music of Fifth Element, it's it's like this, right? and it, it's like some sort of insane drum beat going on with trash cans and you don't know where it's coming from and it's 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 
it's really like nothing else. I, I, I can't think of another movie that sounds even remotely like it anywhere, uh, except maybe The Valerian of a Thousand Planets, but I can't really remember the movie from the music from that movie particularly well because I didn't enjoy that movie, as I'll mention later. And another great name that you have to talk about when you talk about Fifth Element is Jean-Paul Gaultier, who is a French fashion designer famous for his avant-garde theatrical sensibility. He designed all the costumes and really helped create this bizarre future where we get to see in the film from the weird as fuck street outfits we see Corbin and assorted thugs wearing to the uber sexy uniforms of the air stewards to the hot couture of the opera crowd in the diva scene uh, really Gautier the only outfits that he says were really his were ruby rods i everything else was... because i just re he personally checked 500 extras on set supposedly no what i mean is the costuming was done based on what luke's vision was the only right. costumes that were really his as far as his designs things that's like this is me were Ru ruby rod's outfits ah uh, well goatee had done other movies like the cook the thief his wife and her lover being the most famous perhaps but none of them have the same level of sheer world building he does in this movie with costume alone which apparently is not a true thing that i'm saying but i do think the movie's costumes are a big part of its visual language while i'm no means a fashion follower or expert or anything like that i, I dress like drab crap i i think Jean-Paul Gaultier deserved a freaking Oscar for this. but Oh, yeah, he did an amazing job. I, th I think uh, Fifth Element was kind of like uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula a little bit, where uh, it, one of the guiding, guiding principles of Bram Stoker's Dracula was that the costumes will be the sets, in a sense. And while there were very big, detailed sets on the Fifth Element, uh, I think the costumes were big splashes of color and vibrancy that... Uh, really helped define the character of the world that we get to see in this movie. Now, the movie tells the simple story of a down-on-his-luck ex-special ops cab driver in the future who has the perfect being fall into his cab and winds up saving the world with her from a giant space ball of pure evil that's headed toward Earth. Literally fall into his cab. And it's a space ball. So, you know, we were worried about space balls coming at us before, you know, because of Mel Brooks. But now we see what one at really At ludicrous liked. speed. At ludicrous speed, yes. So fast that the, the the warships can't even barely keep up with it. Along the way, we get to meet a ton of wacky characters acting completely insane. We get 90210 heartthrob Luke Perry as an archaeologist assistant, Trip Hop Autour Tricky as Zorg's right arm, Blade Runner's Breon James as a salty old space colonel, Baron Munchausen John Neville as a uptight warship admiral, pro wrestler Zeus as the president of Earth, Maywin Lebesco as the singing alien goddess, Ian Holm as Vito Cornelius, the always-in-a-hurry expositor supreme. Gary Oldman as evil weapons tycoon Zorg, who is the main villain of the piece. Bruce Willis as the cab driver and the stealth badass Corbin Dallas. And Mila Jovovich in the impossible role of Lilu, the perfect being. Melitza Jovovich. She's an interesting Melitza, is that it? Yeah, Melitza Jovovich. It's Mila for short. And I will always call her Mila. The script for Fifth Element is perfect. The music is amazing. The costumes are literally out of this world. And the cast fires on all cylinders at every point in the movie. This is a movie that you can start watching at any point during and it plays perfectly. I defy you to remain depressed while watching the Fifth, fifth Element. I want this movie included in a time capsule sent into space. The only thing as far as the movie goes that... I will say is a negative, um, and I, I don't mean it by it's my my negative. It's the negative of the guy in charge of the visual effects was the scene where they were reconstructing her body and the way that 
the body was put together and everything, he was not happy with, with that effect. I think it kind of had a jeweled quality to it where it looked like the body coming together was a little maybe cartoony. Made out of, I'm sorry? It looked a little cartoony. Cartoony, schmartoony. She was the perfect being, and they were making her out of a hand. That that was all that was left of her after the explosion. And it's, you know, it's. I remember it looking like uh, the body looked vaguely metallic before the skin was grown over it or anything. I I can watch that a hundred times and be like, oh, it looks fine. It looks just fine. And uh, a spoiler alert, of course, at the beginning of the movie, Lilu, full name, and I, and this is going to be hard for me. So everybody, just take a moment. I'm going to try to pronounce her full name. I can pronounce French things, but. This is a made-up language, so here we go. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. You want to try it? No, I, I actually was going to until you did that, and you got it close enough to where that works for me. Yeah, and when you said it was made-up language, it literally was a made-up language. It wasn't something that was just kind of some gibberish that was, here, say this. It was an actual language that was developed that he told movie. her, you need to know this before you even show up to set. They they would sit around and hold conversations in that language. But anyway, Lilu, full name, not saying it again. She's kind of dead at the beginning. Now, the Mandashawans, who are these amazingly designed, kind of like a race of Daleks shaped like walking brass-colored circles instead of upside-down trash cans. There's one of them the left. Body. There's one of them left. They one destroyed all but one bastards yeah when when they were getting ready to destroy it they where, where everything was stored the the ones that owned all of that they oh. contacted the guys that made them and said we're going to destroy them all we're going to record it so it's all going to be documented on tape saying these were all destroyed and because of all the time and effort that they put into making these the guys like you you gotta say you can't destroy these. We have to save them. And they're like, no, it, nope, we're destroying them. We cannot save them. There's no way. So he said, can uh, we just save one? And he said, it's your property. I won't sell it. it. It's yours. But I just, I have to have one of them. I put too much into this. So there's one still in existence, and all the rest have been make destroyed. Make more with CG if they ever made another one of these movies. I, I guess yeah, they could, but the we've seen how well that works in other movies. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Anyway, they're kind of like Daleks in that they're a mechanical race, but they, they're like circles instead of upside-down cylinders and such, and, and they just look amazing. They that, look that's going to get a lot of people mad at you. I am? Yes, because Daleks like aren't a mechanical race. The Mandashalans are not a mechanical race. No, the Daleks aren't. Oh, well, the Daleks have a juicy center. There, there is a cre- Basically, they're, they are a small octopus-like looking creature that's in a battle tank. Who would win in a fight between the Mandashawans and the Daleks? Mondos would be dead in an instant. Uh, probably, yeah. They're a very peaceful race. They got mangled by Mangalores. By the way, that was who I was going to bring up next. The Mangalores, who are also amazingly designed. They're space orcs. Pre-Lord yeah. of the Rings film trilogy space orcs. So they don't look as nasty as later orcs. Because the orcs in the Lord of the Rings movies were made to look just nasty. Like, they're, they're like... They're, did that guy cut up his face or something? Is that what his nose looked like? Or did they cut it up for him or something? That well, they were supposed to come from humans, though, weren't they? Orcs? Yeah. No, they came from elves once. Okay, elves but elves still had that human the look. Dark. They just had different ears. So By Morgoth. 
they, they should Morgoth still have a humanoid people. look to them. No, they were elves that were kept in a kept in a dark cave and forced to breed. And yeah, but uh, since that's where they they came from, they would still have a humanoid look rather than being like the Mangalores that didn't really have a human look to them. Well, that's why I said they're space yeah. orcs, not orcs. Like they're space orcs in the tradition of the Gamorrean guards from Return of the Jedi. There are space orcs. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't trying to correct you. I was just trying to clarify that that one looks a little bit more human, the other doesn't. For anybody that hasn't seen, so the this. Lord of the Rings orcs look a little more human. Yes. Well, they definitely look a little more rugged and lived in. They yeah. Look like they need to take care of their armor better. Yeah. That, I, I liked how the, man, the look for the Mangalores came about, too. How did the look for the Mangalores come about? Um, they they were trying. That was one of the hardest ones, apparently, to try and really nail a look down. And they had all these ideas and couldn't come up with anything. And one of the artists just kind of had sketched out something and of her, her own idea and just put it up there. And, and she put it up on the board, not really thinking too much of it. And Luke came by and saw it and said, that, that's right our there. Mangalore. All it takes is the one concept artist to nail it, and that's it. The whole the whole race is put together. You have a great set of antagonists with the Mangalores, and you have Mr. Shadow, who, well, he's called Mr. Shadow when he makes a phone call, but he's the giant flaming ball of evil that just appears out of nowhere in the middle of a deep space and starts flying towards Earth at a million miles an hour. Mr. Shadow, as, a, as an entity, is not really that scary visually. He's basically just a giant flaming ball. Like a until he shoots a... flaming skull balls at you, yeah. And that's when he he makes an impression. They they or makes you start bleeding from the head. There's an armada of uh, of good guys there, or assumedly good guys. It's an armada of uh, warships uh, that are arranged around Mister Shadow or that the giant ball mysteriously of look. Um, well, not mysteriously. That conspicuously look a lot like Star Destroyers. A little. Just a little. If we wanted to get into the pedigree of Star Wars versus the Fifth Element, there's actually somewhat a, a little bit of incest going on there, if you really wanted to dig into it. Apparently well, there is the, in, in Star Wars, too. Uh, I, 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 I meant incest metaphorically, not literally. When the giant space ball shows up, and I'm going to call it the space ball gladly, because That's what it balls, is. That's what it is, and... Like I said, space balls are bad, bad, bad guys. A giant evil space ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows up. It's, uh, oh, it also changes shape, doesn't it? Like, at one point, it just... Uh, it gets uh, bigger. All, all the fires go out on it, and it, it like, uh, covers itself up in a in rock. Yeah, it, it doesn't really change shape so much. It, it grows. Um, the surface solidifies to anticipate attack. Yeah, it grows whenever they shoot at it. Baron Munchausen... Is sitting there at a command chair, and he's like, "I'll take care of this." Evil in begets no evil. In time at all, and he shoots everything the warship has at it, and uh, it just makes the thing stronger. Exactly. And, uh, and the and Ian Holm is sitting there with uh, the president when this is happening. He's trying to advise the president about what is the wisest course of action. He says, "Evil begets evil, Mister President." The president tells uh, Vito Cornelius, he says, you have 20 seconds to tell me what's going on. And Ian Holm speaks for exactly 20 seconds in that scene. That's how, either that's how good the writer is or that's how good Ian Holm is. He, he just timed it perfectly to speak for exactly 20 seconds. And Ian Holm is a great actor who is sadly no longer with us. 
Uh, genre fans may remember him from... This is a second movie that he's done with a character named Dallas. What was the other one? Alien. Ah, of course. I'm shocked. I thought I'm su- that's I why I, I jumped in like that, because I could have sworn you were going to say you might remember him from Alien. I was so I wanted to, to jump say, in before you could do that. I No, I was going to say From Hell. You may remember him from From Hell. Yep. And, of course, you may remember him as Ash, the science officer on the Nostromo in the film Alien with Sigourney Weaver and Tom Skerritt as who? Who did Tom Skerritt play in that movie? I believe the name was Dallas. Yes, indeed. His name was Dallas. And I have completely failed as a podcaster, as a horror (laughs) podcaster. I have just... I am shocked you didn't didn't know that one. Jump right on that. No. Uh, Oh, my head is spinning with failure. And this was an interesting, I can't remember how many movies he had done before this. This was Bruce Willis's 30th. This was Mila's fifth. She had not been in many movies prior to this. Uh, Chris Tucker, I think that was his fifth as well. He'd made a splash in Friday prior to this. Yes. Um, But this was one of those movies, just like Strangers on a Train was a movie where you count the doubles. This is a movie where you count the fives. Mm Mm-hmm. There are a lot of fives in this movie. And speaking of Corbin Dallas, he is a great protagonist because he fits the movie perfectly. And he's as much in the dark about what's going on as the audience. And he needs things explained to him the same way we do. Uh, Rather than being the subject of exposition, like perhaps Hellboy in the first Ron Perlman Hellboy movie, uh, Corbin Dallas is the recipient. He learns what we learn and the story goes forward. He's interested in Lilu and her purpose and so are we. Which isn't to say the movie is one long exposition dump after another, because it's not. The plot is astoundingly simple. Bruce Willis and an orange-haired supermodel have to stop the evil using four magic stones. They go on an adventure to retrieve the stones. Stuff yeah. happens, and it's a, as fun a two hours and change as you're likely to have watching a movie. And it's not just an orange. It's Mandarin orange. Her hair? Yes. Uh, they, they were trying to find the right shade of orange, and Luke finally says Mandarin. And they couldn't figure out what it was. And then it's like, this Mandarin, they, they finally found that Mandarin orange is the color. Um, Mila Jovovich's hair fell out, unfortunately, during the production. And they had to get a wig because yeah, they halfway. had to keep dyeing her hair orange so often. Well, that... they, they weren't touching her roots up because they, if you looked at her hair, it was only orange to a certain point and then it was blonde. So when they, they touch up the it. roots, they were overlapping the bleach and not touching it upright, and it burned it and killed her hair. And her hair started falling out. Burned it, killed her hair, and they had to put her in a wig. But, as luck would have it, Mila Jovovich looks amazing with short hair, too, so she probably didn't lose a step. I I think she was regrowing her hair, and she uh, rocked a pompadour following the uh, release of uh, Fifth Element and uh, appeared on many a magazine cover having this... uh, amazing looking pompadour where she was growing her hair back out and that was like a medium style for her now one of the things that stands out to me most about fifth element that i'll talk about whenever i talk about the movie is jean-baptiste emmanuel zorg and who plays him grimweed gary oldman gary amazing oldman. gary is, oldman amazing gary oldman and what i i one of the things i love about fifth element is that you have the antagonist zorg who never once meets your hero Never once meets your heroes. Thank you. That That's exactly what I was going for. They're only we, in the same shot once in the entire movie, and they're still not on screen together. 
No, they're not. They're only time. Now, that's the thing. Let's. They never really have much interaction. Uh, the the heroes wind up being Lilu, Corbin, Cornelius. Later on, Ruby Rod, and then there's Cornelius's little helper guy, whose name I, I, David. I completely forget. David. I believe so. If I remember right, that's the the name he reads off of the multi pass when. The, he goes to the airport and says, I sent him to check in or to get my boarding pass. Yeah. They never have any real direct interaction with Zorg. Now, Zorg is pulling the strings and trying to get the stones. He's Cornelius the does. What? Cornelius has direct interaction with him. D- exactly. That's why I was yes. getting to that. Oh, I thought you named everybody and said they never had. So uh, that's I'm a, sorry. I, I'm uh, jumping that, ahead. I, that was a mistype. That, that was a typo. Mangalores, he wants the Mangalores to retrieve them, but we never get any kind of scene where Zorg is about to pull off his master plan and the plucky good guys win. He fires Corbin Dallas as a part of a mass layoff early in the movie. He has a meeting with Cornelius about a third of the way through the movie, but neither of them really gets anything out of it, except Zorg almost chokes on a cherry pit and Cornelius saves him. Other Imagine means, how much different this movie would have been if he would have let him choke. Yeah, but Cornelius is a nice guy. Oh, but, yeah. You know, I'm not Cornelius saying he says, should have let him choke. I'm just saying, imagine what if. It would have been a lot more boring because Zorg was such a fun character to watch in the movie. I, I think Zorg added a, an, added a really interesting side plot to the movie, as I will go on to say. You see, other than that meeting, Zorg is basically operating at cross-purposes to Corbin and Lilu, but they never come into any grand confrontation. It's like Zorg, for all his machinations, is just a pawn in the game of good versus evil, and he isn't aware when he gets sacrificed. The story moves on without him, and the good guys don't have to kill him. He dies as a result of his own plans going wrong. Yeah, the only ones he interacts with are Cornelius and Lilu. Does he ever interact with Lilu? Well, he tries to shoot her. Oh, he does try to shoot her, yes. He, he comes in after her fight and says, thanks for doing all the hard work for me, and then tries to kill her. But she doesn't get it. I think she... Doesn't he wound her or something? I think she has to hide in the scene. Yeah. He was using one of his amazing space guns that he was paying the Mangalores with. Or not paying them with, however you want to look at it. Yeah, he, uh, no stones, no crates. Uh, four stones, four crates. No zero st- stones, zero crates! Exactly. That was a cool gun, though. I mean, just the, the replay button. Yeah. I, I, I defy Marvel to come up with a... a Marvel's Iron Man to come up with that much arsenal in one little package. Well, Iron Man would have to, it would be a targeting thing and lock on and do a lot of other things. This was just one little, or not little, but it was one gun that had everything. You didn't have to have special targeting. You shoot it and then say replay and everything goes there. Well, I guess don't say replay, you activate replay, but yeah, then every shot goes where that first one went. Mm-hmm. Which, well, it seems like a waste of bullets if you're a good shot, but I don't think the Mangalores were. It didn't seem to be. They didn't hit no. much. No, they they were good at taking hostages, and they loved to negotiate. That that that's one of the that was one of my things I always laugh at whenever the whenever the Mangalores like uh, get into a get into a get into a catch twenty two situation where they're like, we have a hostage. If someone sent someone to negotiate, and it's like. I think there's two or three times when they try to negotiate throughout the movie. See, they... At least twice. They say they, they're they not merchants, and then semi-negotiate to get a crate of weapons, and then they try to negotiate the hostage, and that doesn't end well. No, it does not. 
I don't remember any other negotiations, though. Corbin Dallas was much better at negotiating than any of the Mangalores. Yes, by far. Yeah. He had a now, very uh, unique negotiation intact. Shoot the leader, basically. Yeah. Shoot the leader. Mangalores won't fight without a leader. Anyway, back to the story. Uh, I think there's a moral to Zorg's story that base human evil is choked by its own ego. He, he's, he, he claims to be serving chaos when he doesn't really know the intentions of the true master that he's serving. Mr. Shadow is, is a being of pure destruction, and there's not going to be any chaos to redeem, I think, the apocalypse that's coming due to Mr. Shadow's impact on Earth, that, which Mr. Sh Mr. Shadow is basically like Sephiroth's meteor attack come to life, and he's coming for the planet Earth, and it's going to just destroy the whole thing. Yeah, there, Probably, there will be no more life anywhere ever, and... Yeah. Zorg is just worried about his payment and the cost is going to go up because it's harder to get the stones than he thought. And I think Mr. Shadow's like, money is no object or something. Talk about um, hell to edit. That is going to be a pain. <laughs> what was wrong with that? Just trying to hear it is going to be hard. Well, I think he said money is no object. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, does Mr. Shadow have a bank account somewhere? I, I think it's more, you're not going to be alive, so I don't have to worry about paying you. That makes sense, too. But I, I but it's it's not unheard of for otherworldly beings and fantasy stories to have uh, holdings in the mortal plane. Like, uh, you know, maybe a townhouse in New York where they can get away from, uh, you know, being an extra-dimensional being. Uh, maybe, a like, a Lucifer on the show Lucifer, he comes to Earth and... It just so happens, of course, he's a billionaire who can do whatever he wants because he's, you know, he's, as shocking as it may seem, he's invested over the years. Well, yeah, but there, there's still something there um, called life. And the so space ball is going to eradicate all life. So therefore, it probably hasn't made a visit to check up on a stock market. A stock. Yeah, I, I'd say uh, there's probably not a whole lot of investment portfolio action going um, Probably not. I, I'm leaning more towards you're going to be dead, so I don't have to worry about paying you anyway. Probably. Which makes Zorg a bit of a sucker. Just a bit. Zorg is this oddball character played with great charisma by Gary Oldman. And while he's on screen, as weird as it is, you kind of root for him. Uh, we as the audience know he's an agent of the giant ball of evil moving through space, and he gets to give this little spiel about chaos versus order and all that. But when he's on screen, you almost feel sorry for him because nothing ever goes his way. Even though he's a schmuck who kills his own henchman who fails at the task, it, it, it sucks seeing Tricky blown up. Uh, Gary Oldman just imbues the guy with so much oddball charisma that even as he operates at cross-purposes of the heroes, you love to watch him. Uh, okay, I'm with you on that. Uh, I'm with you that on the love to watch him, but I'm not quite with you on the root for him. Yeah, that was a bit of an overstatement. You just want to see more of Zorg. He's is a, he is a very interesting character, and he's one that you kind of want a backstory for. Yeah, you do. Not, not so much so you can understand him, just because you look at him and listen to him, and you just have to wonder what brought him to this point. Just like the limp and the what whatever that weird plastic thing was on his head. It's like, was that just a style choice? Was that fashion or was that function? I believe it was style choice, yes. Um, uh, or it could have been like some sort of brace he had to wear to keep his brain inside his skull. I mean, it's really hard to say it. because it wasn't just on the side of his head. It kind of wrapped around the back and... and there was a lot of things that, that were about him that made you think. Like the metallic clang on with his limp 
I mean, what? Yeah, he had that. It was like he had a club foot. Yeah. And he had to wear a special boot. Um, but he he's one that I think he, he could have an interesting backstory. Not only that, but you just got that great name, Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. I mean... All this nice, know, fancy, beautiful-sounding name finished name with Zorg. Zorg. Because Zorg is the ultimate sci-fi bad guy name. It just is. But and it's, it's, you do have, in, in the history of villains, you do have a lot of Zs and Ks. You do. And Vs. Yes. Anyway. Anyway, part of what makes up Zorg's charm has to do with the fact that Gary Oldman is famous for inventing a unique voice for all his characters. Maybe not all, but he works hard at coming up with different voice and accent and sort of personal intonations for every character he plays. I think he basically invented the Gotham City accent that he used as, for, as Commissioner Gordon in the Nolan Batman trilogy. For the fifth element, he decided to give Zorg a goofy sort of West Virginian accent. So on the one hand, you have this guy who's shamelessly evil, this out-and-out card-carrying villain, this gonzo character, but he talks like he's Jodie Foster's cousin from Silence of the Lambs. And he's got this sedate and rather mild country general store owner voice that I guess was meant to show Zork's background or, or something. I mean, somehow West Virginian country folks are the new tycoons in the 23rd century. In our time, the villains always have British accents. In the future, though, it's, it's West Virginians. No, the, the villains had, either, as far as that time, the villains still had German accents. The, the intelligent ones were the British accents. In our time? No, in the time that that movie was made. Oh, okay. The the intelligent, the more upper crust, smart, intelligent figures had the British accents. The villains all had German. German. And then as... Die Hard is is a prime example of this? It is a perfect example of this. Um, But then as things changed and everything else started to, to change a little with the world it went some somewhat away from germans and more into middle east and the villains started becoming more middle eastern yes thank you to james cameron and true lies and uh, also world events that uh, made uh, middle eastern people an easy yeah. target for hollywood uh, boogeymen yeah so, well the same thing happened with the germans i mean that's kind of what that's what kicked them off is the big bad yes and we had russians for a while we got germ well we've Still got Russian, but Russian, German, Middle East. It, it's all based on who it, who is the big bad of the era at the time that this is being made. I think when uh, Batman debuted as a uh, as a serial on movie screens in the 30s, or no, it was the 40s, I'm sorry. He mainly fought Japanese saboteurs to help the war effort. Yeah, and I, Superman fought Nazis. Superman fought Nazis, uh... The Spectre fought Nazis. Any superhero worth his salt back in the day fought Nazis and killed them like nobody's business. Wolverine, uh, Captain America. Captain America, the Spectre, I believe. Indiana uh, Jones. Now, another fun character or annoying character, depending on how blatantly macho you are, is who am I talking about here, Grim? Fun character, blatantly macho. No, who is absolutely annoying if you happen to be blatantly macho. Ruby Rod. Exactly. And especially the first time you see him when he's got a pool noodle on his head. Is that a... Yeah, that's basically what it looks like, is a pool yeah. noodle. Uh, it's a... It's his hair. Ruby is a kind of podcast, radio host, shock jock, interviewed with the stars kind of guy that Corbin and Lilu run into on Flossed in Paradise. Very over the top. When they go to retrieve the stones. Sorry? Very over the top. 
Very over the top. Uh, he, he's kind of like, in fact, I can't think of a modern equivalent as to what Ruby Rod is. I would it's, say take Howard Stern when he was at his most shocking, like when he was constantly getting fired because he was pushing limits. Mm-hmm. Take that and mix it with the Elvis sexuality, just that he enters a room and all women swoon. And that does happen several times in the film. Uh, he is on a plane to Floss and Paradise. Well, not a plane. It's a space shuttle that is taking everybody to Floss and Paradise after they win a contest, which is rigged in a deus ex machina kind of plot point. Yeah, anyway. basically the military need him to go and retrieve the stones from Floss and Paradise from Diva a singer on and, and in order to get him there on time they rig a contest so he will win this nice trip for 10 days that should be an easy mission and turns out to be anything but and he takes Lilu along with him um uh, actually i think how did it go first uh vito cornelius and shows up and steals his tickets from corbin dallas by uh well first the military department. shows up and tells him what happened that they that they first rigged the, the contest. military shows up and tells him yes they you've won the contest then vito cornelius shows up and steals the tickets from him and yeah. says we have to go to floss in paradise with lilu yeah and this and, is after he hid three large people in a refrigerator and then uh, one of one of whom was brian james and then Cornelius and Lulu show up. And then the cops show up to raid the place looking for Corbin Dallas. And he hides Lulu in the shower, which has an auto wash, and Cornelius in the bed, which makes itself. And I seriously want one. Yeah, that would be nice. Of course, it's, it's also a twin bed that folds into the wall. Everything yeah. in Corbin Dallas's apartment is modular and automatic. Which is, is cool. I mean, auto wash, yeah. man. It's cool, but it's also, like, the size of a hallway. Well, yeah, but when it's just you, what else do you need? I mean, he's got his refrigerator in there. He's got a bed. Corbin Dallas was a micro He's got a Thai restaurant that floats to his window. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A beautiful Thai restaurant, by the way, that looks like a floating... Boat. I think it was a blimp. It was kind of like an old junk. Yeah, it was like an old Chinese future floating junk hovercraft. And by the way, that was probably a Blade Runner reference when you know he's eating Thai food in the future. Yeah, I, I just remember he, he forgot to feed the cat, so he decides to make it up by ordering Thai food. And speaking of when they go to Flossed in Paradise to retrieve the stones, I never thought of it before until I saw it recently, but it's a good thing the diva got shot so they could get the stones out of her. I mean, yeah, I wondered how she was going to give the stones up if that hadn't yeah. happened. I mean, I don't know if she's going to expel them or cough them up for Lilu after the concert, but her getting her getting shot kind of made it easy for Corbin to stick his hand in there and fish around and, for, and pull well, the stones out. How did they get in there? I would assume she can. She can. She did she can, just uh, swallow them? I, I Were they know. surgically implanted? It would make sense for them to be surgically implanted, but I. I, I you don't would know think, how. being a singer with that kind of voice, you wouldn't want to try and swallow them. No, probably not. I, I, it's possible that her body was amorphous and that uh, her body uh, had a different kind of consistency than a, than a human flesh bag, so that maybe if she just pressed the stones hard to her abdomen, she could absorb them. When he stuck his hand in her stomach, let's be clear, he put his hand in her stomach. Her stomach, people. Yes. So when he shoved his hand in her, um, she did same kind of hollow. 
it wasn't like you would expect there to be a lot of guts or whatever. It seemed more like a cavity rather than maybe just... All of her organs are probably in her tentacles so that her, her whole body can be an echo chamber for her voice. That could explain how she was able to produce the sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruby is this larger-than-life character who walks and talks with his own personal soundtrack that he controls with a cane microphone. Uh, he has a giant phallic cylinder sticking out of his forehead for a haircut. He wears unitards that would make David Bowie blush. He has a high-pitched voice that gets immediately on your nerves, and he was almost played by Prince. Apparently, the purple one didn't like the costumes, though, they designed for him, and he also couldn't shoot the movie because it would have interfered with his touring. Yeah, and uh, still... Chris Tucker said that the inspiration for him, for the character, was a combination of Prince and Michael Jackson. Prince is Ruby Rod. I, he would have uh, he would have had the much deeper voice, because Prince is known to have rather quite the range. Uh, Jamie Foxx had this great routine he did about when he met Prince, he, he felt a Apparently, Jamie Foxx felt a, a little twinge of homosexuality just being in the same room with Prince. Like, he he, he did a whole stand-up routine about it where he said, man, I feel weird being around him. And, and and he's talking to Prince's bodyguard, and he's like, yeah, that happened. He's like... Yeah, I have heard and, and quite a like, few people mention that. It, it was interesting. And, and Jamie Foxx mentions the, the bodyguard. He goes, it happened to you? How'd you get over it? He goes, oh, man, it fucked me up for years. It's just like... <laughs> so apparently prince had the raw sexual power that would have added something to ruby rod uh like uh when ruby rod walks into the room it's chris tucker and all the women are swooning over him and you know you get the idea that it's uh you know oh it's like he's he's a celebrity they adore his show it's oh it, it, they they love ruby rod because he's he's ruby rod he's such a cult of personality kind of person you get that you get this feeling that hypersexual hypersexual and such but i feel like if they had actually cast prince then ruby rod would have been like a walking porno movie that as soon as he walks in not only do all the women in the in the room melt but Probably a lot of the guys do too, and the movie would probably like Prince would burn his way out of the screen, just like with the raw sexual power. See, I think looking at it, I can see the the Prince influence easily. I mean, it's obvious the Prince and Michael Jackson influence in Ruby Rod. You can I don't tell see Michael Jackson as much. Michael Jackson was always more of like, um, maybe I think dancing. if you were gonna cast Prince, I would I would do a gender swap and have prince be the fifth element for me that would make more sense because with lilu every time the men okay you just blew my mind every time the men were around her it was like she is perfect it was just everybody loved her and that's kind of like with prince that's how that's how other men describe prince being in the room with prince so it's like you just do a gender swap and you make you make instead of it being bruce willis you use like Charlize Theron or something, and 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 just flip it. This movie would have bombed at the box office if that if that had happened. I, I just don't. I, there's no way the audiences would have come out in droves the way they did, and they didn't really come out in droves that much. No. Uh, but that that is an amazing idea. That if you're gonna have Prince in a movie about the perfect being, just cast him as the perfect being. Yeah. <laughs> it's right there. It's, uh, don't just have him be this backup character like Ruby Rod. No, just have Prince be. Th- be the angel come down to heaven to save the world or something. Why not? Yeah. You can do it with the power of song, too, at some point if you wanted. Uh, no, that is a brilliant idea. Okay, so when I ask you later, like, what would you have changed about the movie? 
Well, you, you could say nothing, or you could just say, well, I would have cast Prince in Mila Jovovich's part. Well, no, I wouldn't necessarily have cast him in her part. I would, I would say if you did that, you'd swap not just that one character's gender. Yeah, you, you'd swap you'd have Corbin to, Dallas's yeah. gender and have swap and his have, and see Charlie's Theron and, and being in the future. Okay, why does why is the priest still got to be a man? It very well could be. Yeah, I, I would just I would do quite a few gender swaps, possibly even the the president. The president is a girl. What is what is wrong with you? No. <laughs> okay, so it, it's either a girl or a very large black man. I, he, well, he is. He, Zeus is a big fella. Yes. No, I, I, yeah, that's funny. I, I think we've had uh, a few movie versions of the president of Earth, and uh, the fifth element is just the one that comes to mind most easily. But I, I don't know if we've ever had one where the president of Earth was a was a woman. There, uh, there have been movies with female presidents. I don't necessarily don't know if it was a president of Earth, of Earth yeah, but there have been the female presidents. I, I yes, I've seen movie. Uh, there was a TV show about a female president, Madam President. I previously talked about Lilu being an impossible character for all intents and purposes, and she is. Um, but Mila Jovovich pulls it off with a kind of wide-eyed innocence, goofball comedic verve, and and by mastering a language that doesn't exist. Uh, apparently, her and Bassam would speak in the language on set, supposedly. And uh, there's, I don't think there's an actual dictionary for the divine language. No, he speaks. he started making it up when he was a kid, and he'd worked a long time. Over a lot of years, trying to develop it, um, and she helped. I think as he introduced her to it, she added to it with him. Um, from what she says, a lot of it was like she would ask him, like, "How do I say this?" or "What about this?" And he would think about it and come back the next day and have a whole another big list of words for her to learn. Uh, but uh, supposedly, by the end of the shoot, they were having full conversations in the yes. language. And there's. There was some, I don't know if it was speculation or if it was just kind of an offhanded thing, but I watched this with, there's, instead of subtitles, you can do a fact track. And I don't know if you've, if you've watched that on, on yours at all. Um, But basically it's just, instead of subtitles coming up, it's just little trivia things. And one of the things that comes up about that language was they were possibly talking about their future wedding because it was only a couple of months after this that they ended up getting together and i can't remember if they got engaged a couple of months later or if they got married a couple of months later but at the time of the filming of this he was engaged to, to Ma- yeah he, he was engaged to to, to mawin and who audiences and of the genre will uh well of the horror genre may remember most clearly from high tension that was another good movie that was another good yes. movie. But yeah, so that that was one of the things that came up on the fact track is, were, were they actually talking about that? I do not know. It's possible. I I wasn't there. I don't know. But it, it, it seems Don't understand like the language anyway, so still wouldn't know. No one know. does, yes. It's, it's, it pretty much exists only in Luc Besson's and uh, Mila Jovovich's heads. For me, there's not a lot of one-off movies that I can name that invent their own language for a character. Okay, most of the time when that happens, it's a franchise. Okay, and that's another reason I think this should have been a franchise. Yeah, because uh, even Elvish, that's not really a one-off, and that's a fully no, developed it's not, language. Because he wrote how many books about elves? Um, and Klingon was not a one-off. Exactly. That's another Tolkien, fully developed language. Tolkien invented all kinds of languages for Lord of the Rings. 
George R. R. Martin invented Dothraki for Game of Thrones. Yeah. A guy named Mark Okrand invented Klingon for Star Trek. James Cameron worked with linguists to make a language for the Navi of Avatar. And that is the bare minimum level of storytelling we need to be talking about generally when a language itself has to be invented. And I could be wrong. Maybe there's all kinds of stuff out there that are one-and-done stories that have their own languages, but I doubt it. Point being that there's another reason that this movie should have been a franchise. It had its own language, and Mila had to learn it. And before is, they can even start filming. Before she before even, they even start turn filming. up to set. It is impossible, by the way, talking about Mila Jovovich in this movie, it is impossible for me to be impartial about this. Because when this movie came out in 1997, I was a teenage boy, and I completely fell in love with this amazing woman named Lilu, played by this Ukrainian goddess, Mila Jovovich. She learned a whole language for the part, did martial arts training to fight like Bruce Lee. She had to run around in a white outfit people have dubbed the Band-Aid suit. And she did all this after her biggest roles up to that point were a bit part in Dazed and Confused, a bad sequel to the equally bad Blue Lagoon, and a bunch of heroin-chic Calvin Klein obsession commercials. Mila has gone on to be the top-earning female action star of all time, and she deserves every penny she's earned and every drop of happiness in her life. I loved this movie, and I will shamelessly gush over it until the day I die, and I dare you to criticize Lilu Grimm. Wasn't even going to do that. I wasn't even going to think about it. I was thinking how um, she actually won a Best Newcomer Award for this role. Which she deserved completely. Yes. And she was also nominated for Best Fight uh, by the MTV Movie Awards. And she. And was that was also... the fight scene with the leg on a stick, right? I believe that was the leg on the stick. Yeah, it, so... When she's fighting the Mangalores and she's got the one right in front of her and I think she's holding on to him with both hands, but they're so close that she can't really like really put her leg out far and she had just started to learn martial arts at the point, so she couldn't get her leg up high enough. So uh, they happened they to have a leg there that they could use that was essentially just a leg on a stick. So when she does that high kick and kicks him in the face, there's a couple guys just out of shot with the leg and they fling it up and hit him in the face with it. That must have been hilarious. Yeah, I would love to see a wide shot just to see that in full. I would have loved to have been the Mangalore just, you know, getting crushed, getting my face crushed by Mila. Well, yeah, there's that too. I personally would rather have been Bruce Willis, but that's just me. Any chance I could get, man. Any chance. That's all. If, if it's really between the two being Bruce Willis and ending up in that thing at the end or being a Mangalore and getting hit by a leg on a stick, I'll take Bruce Willis. Yeah, well, I, I dream realistically. Well, dream big, you know, go no. big or go home. <sighs> Strangely, Luke Besson did venture into FX heavy sci-fi action again with Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, but it was meh. I watched it, and that's my basic reaction. Valerian, isn't that... That's also a comic by... It is. It's actually um, the comic by Melier. Yeah. That uh, he based much of Fifth Element on. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the, the styles. And, um, and what, was it, was it that one? A lot of Star Wars on the, on the comic, on Valerian comics. What, was Valerian the one that... The, the inspiration for the inside when they first get to Flaston Paradise? I'm not sure. Um, with the big windows and everything. Because the one thing that that they were really happy that Luke let them do was do their own thing and design mm. and just, this is this is the look we want. And Luke's like, sure, great. I mean, he would, it's like, can you do a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that and just fine tune. But he kind of let them do their own thing. And the 
only time that he went to them and said, I want this was when they first get in and you see those big grand windows and everything else. But even then it was, I want this because I saw it in, and I think it was Valerian. I, I saw it in that and I loved mm. it. Can you recreate that for this and just kind of give it this exactly. style? So it's like, yeah, he did come to us and want us to do something specific for him. But even then it was something from our ideas anyway. So we'll let him pass. But everything else was them doing their own thing and creating the sets and the scenes and and just the look and feel of it all. Uh, supposedly, Luc Besson was sued by Alejandro Jodorowsky and uh, Mobius uh, because Jodorowsky and Mobius uh, had some evidence that uh, Luc Besson stole elements of the fifth element from their graphic novel, De Incal. And uh, unfortunately, a judge decided that the elements were small and too varied to uh, constitute a outright theft. Or fortunately, actually, for the sake of Busan and the originality of our beloved movie, Fifth Element, uh, maybe someday the Incal will make it to the big screen. I don't know. Apparently, Malier's Valerian was a large, was a huge influence on Star Wars. I've never read it. Maybe someday I will. If we ever cover the Valerian movie on this podcast, my thoughts about it will come out in more detail. But as it is now, I think we've got a pretty solid understanding of what we both think of Fifth Element. Don't you, Mr. Grimm? I, I think so. I think we're good. If you could change anything, what would it be besides the Prince Bot gender swap? And I don't... I, I don't. It's not something you would change. I don't know if I would necessarily say I would change that. I, I think that would just be... If you were trying to put Prince in it, I wouldn't put Prince as this DJ character. I would. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's just because Prince just had that magnetism. He just exudes magnetism. Charisma. If if I would change anything, that, that pl plastic thing on Gary Oldman's head, I think that's it. The only thing I would change is you said the CG on the body being reconstructed was a bit shoddy or it didn't age that well. And you know what? Fine, I'll go with that. Let's, uh, let's have them do a special edition where they, they, they make Mila's insides a little more detailed. I don't know. So now that you mentioned that, I don't know if I would necessarily say I would change it. Maybe update it so the graphics looked better. But I think I'd just I'd keep the scene as it was. But like I said, maybe updated graphics. I think the really only change would be what I was saying. This is sacrilege. Sacrilege, what we both said. The movie's perfect the way it is. It's perfect the way it is, and everybody should watch The Fifth Element as often as they can. If you ever catch it on TV and it's like, oh, cool, Fifth Element's on, that's a good time for you. You've yeah. just lucked out. It, it's perfect the way it is. You just ignore the continuity errors and other random things that appear a lot throughout the movie. Continuity. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, there, there's quite a few continuity errors. Yes, I imagine there are, but I've never nip. I don't nitpick when I'm watching the Fifth Element. I just enjoy it. I'm yeah. along for the ride. I um, I've watched this movie a lot, and mm -hmm. a lot of times it was either VHS or I was at someone else's house and watched it on DVD or something like that, or watched it on TV. And when it came time for this, I went over to the shelf and grabbed mine off the shelf. And realized I'd had it for years and I'd never even unwrapped it. And um, it's 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 the ultimate edition, a two-disc DVD. No, it's a two-disc DVD set. It's not even the Blu-ray. Oh, sweet. 
But yeah, I was I was watching that, and then I found the fact track. So it's like, oh, I gotta watch it again just with a fact track. And then after Which that, is a great use as we recorded this. Sir. Um, oh, there's so much on there. I mean, like the the diva dance that song. She practiced that song for third for what, like three months before they actually started filming. When she found out, okay, this is what's gonna happen, and she practiced it, practiced it like thirty times a day, every day. And this was the soprano Inva Mula who uh, performed the music, the vocal performance for the Diva Plava Laguna character. Uh, and I believe, according to IMDb, they had to sequence the notes, or did she actually pull it off? No, it's not humanly possible. That's what I thought. Well, I say that, but <laughs> the, the way things are going now, it's getting questionable on that, too. Um, yeah, but I'll get back to that in a second. I think, uh, I think there's some guy in Asia who's... Dimash? Like yeah. yeah. He's got this voice like a bird. And he, oh, he can sing the diva He switches octaves and and just so quick. And he goes from one extreme to the other. And so many times, especially watching reactions from uh, different singing coaches or voice coaches or whatever, and anytime they watch him, it's just like they're in awe. It's like, how can that be possible? It's, he can't be human. But yeah, the song was designed to not be singable by humans because of the the fluctuations the rabbit, in the, pitch the and everything. The human throat cannot make the the changes necessary between yeah. the notes. It can't change notes as fast as the diva dance requires. Um, unless you happen to be this one guy, possibly. Uh, well, even all the people that have attempted it over the years, they always make some kind of change because it's not possible. But his is the closest I've ever seen. But she practiced that because he told her, no, I still want you to sing it. And even if they, even if we dub over, the performance still has to be there. It has to look like you're actually doing this. So she'd practice it over and over again. And then when it finally came time to do it in the, the opera house, that was the first time that they had seen her. Because up until that point, none of the cast knew what she looked like. And then they open up the curtains and she steps out. That was the first time they'd actually seen that character when she comes out to do that performance. Well, it wasn't, yeah, but the character Mei Wen was in the costume and it was the Invamula who was singing. So yeah. I, I could imagine, I, I, I don't know why they would have that reaction to the costume and not to the singing, which was dubbed in later. Well, no, I mean, she still got up there and singing, sang the song and did the performance, but still, that that character, it was a very captivating look. It wasn't. And to just suddenly have this character you've never seen before with this just out there look that you just, you can't help but want to know more hmm. and comes out and does this amazing performance that sadly ends up getting chopped up, which the way it was chopped up and edited together with the other scenes, I think was great. But she was not happy. She she was rather disappointed because so much of her performance got cut out. Um, but it is on the extras, so you can see the whole performance. It's in front of a green screen, but you can see the whole performance. Um, it's really good. Um, but yeah, like I was saying, I got I got this out off the shelf, and I wa watched the fact track, and it just it made me want to watch it again and start counting the fives. <laughs> A lot of fives to count in there, people. So yeah. next time you're watching Fifth Element, go for it. How many times do they say five minutes? How many times when, when like, 
at, at the end when the president walks in and he's going to thank Corbin Dallas and you look behind him and there's all these people that come in and there's five guys with military hats. Mm. There's when, when the bomb is about to go off and Gary Oldman stops it, he stops it at five seconds. Mm. And then the Mangalore bomb comes on, it's at five seconds. Exactly. I mean, there's fives all throughout. He gained himself one second, basically. I said it when we did our first episode. What? I'm not really one to get into all the special features. And so oh. far, I've got into the special features of the three movies we've done. And each time, it's made me want to go back for more. That is the joy of special features. And that is part of the joy of enjoying... Physical media. Physical media. But on that note, this train is pulling into the station, my friends, and it is time for us to have to bid you adieu. I'd like to thank Grim for being my wonderful co-host on this little journey we took into The Fifth Element, one of our favorite movies, and uh, one I plan on seeing many times more in the future. I believe you're the same, Mr. Grim. Yeah, and as far as the thanks, yeah, well, obviously, gotta you thanked everyone else. I gotta thank you as well. Ah, oh, you're welcome. Uh, and thank to all, thanks to all the people listening, and remember to... Like, subscribe, thumbs up, stars, w- whatever the rating device is on whatever or app criticize. you're using. Just, or just, you know, leave comments. Leave your thoughts. Um, if you don't have anything nice to say, make something up. There you go. <laughs> we don't want negative. We, we, want, we want the positives, especially with Fifth Element. We want the positives. Because what, what negative can you say about Fifth Element, really? None that I Other can Other than it's, it's a shame it's not more popular. It's a shame it's not more popular and that we did get more of it. So, and this uh, is The Strangers signing off. Yeah. Thank you so much, Internet Land, and goodbye for now. Goodbye.